This is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission, to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On October 14, 2016, University of Minnesota archaeologist Steve Kosiba met a panel of Siams students and faculty to discuss materiality, constructions of value, and placemaking among the Inca. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Siams. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Radio Siams. It's a beautiful fall day here in Ithaca. My name is Adam Smith. I'm the chair of the Department of Anthropology here at Cornell. It's my great pleasure that we have with us today Professor Steve Kasiba from the Department of Anthropology at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Kasiba specializes in the archaeology political life as seen through the lens of the pre-Columbian Andes. Our touchstones for today's conversation are two of Dr. Kasiba's recent writings. First, a contribution entitled In Placing Value, Cultivating Order, Places of Conversion, and Practices of Subordination Throughout Early Inca State Formation, which appeared in 2012 in The, Constitu- the, the Construction of Value in the Ancient World, a volume edited by John Papadopoulos and Gary Erden. And second, we have in front of us a second piece co-authored with Andrew Bauer entitled How Things Act, an Archaeology of Materials and Political Life, that appeared this year, 2016, in Archaeological Dialogues. Our discussion today will thus consider a range of issues that circulate around the problem of political authority and how archaeology can use its perspective on the material world to help rethink the political. Around the table with us today are five students who are members of SIAMS and who will be leading the discussion for most of the time. But let me start things off by asking Steve to reflect broadly on how archaeological examinations of political life have changed in recent years, particularly under the influence of the wider material turn in the human sciences that has focused our attention on the consequential work of objects and places. Steve, take it away. Yeah. Well, thank you, Adam, for a very nice introduction. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very happy to be having this discussion with all of you. Uh, You ask a fairly complicated question, (laughs) as always, (laughs) a difficult one. And and I think it's complicated in some regards, because I would would make an argument that archaeologists typically don't uh, investigate authority, that they're typically inquiring into power. And uh, there's often a slippage between archaeological definitions of power and authority, and archaeologists work both lines, often using terms like authority and legitimacy when they're really talking about political economic power over resources, territory, and population. Uh, The way that I've defined authority, building on one of my advisors, Adam Smith, (laughs) is to think about practices of the constitution of authority, which leads us away from thinking of territorial power, control over resources, and managing population in this kind of Machiavellian framework, which we see very often in some archaeological studies, I would say from the 1970s and 80s, that are conducting regional surveys to look at the spread of power over territory. Uh, And it refocuses on practices, first of all, which changes our scalar orientation to start thinking about relationships between particular people that are within and often over particular spaces and those spaces themselves being part of that dialogue. And that's really, I I would say, inherited that idea of, in part yours, from the landscapes tradition, which gave us a a launching pad to move into what we now call the object-oriented turn in archaeology, or some people call the ontological turn or new materialism. 
I think archaeologists were already asking some of these questions, in other words, before the advent of what is now called new materialism, because with a landscape's perspective done correctly, we should be thinking about how perceptions of space, how the built environment are always part of the political action or always part of the process, how they're framing the kinds of decisions people are making that may have to do with the relationships that constitute authority. So the place of practices that constitute authority, of course, is part of the process. And that's something that I think we inherited from landscapes. We're now moving into what we might call materiality theory and the ontological turn in archaeology, which then amplifies even further our notion of society and political action to include things as active players or playing social roles. And I think that now raises a challenge for archaeologists to certain degrees. Many archaeologists are building on theories inherited from Bruno Latour, Jane Bennett, and others, but aren't necessarily adding what I would say would be what we can do, a unique archaeological perspective on these theories. Because archaeology has the possibility of looking at different scales of practice within individual sites across regions and over time, we have the ability to really talk about how objects and places have been part of political action within particular regions and to do that comparatively over a much broader region or as we were talking about today at lunch even between say mesoamerican and inca states or something of that sort and we're almost unique in that regard i mean i would guess there would be other people from other disciplines who would claim they, they can do the same thing but we don't have to do any we don't have to shift our epistemology in doing so archaeologically we're using the same set of same toolkit in order to look at these different practices over space and over time. So I think there's a lot we can add to the ontological term in terms of empirical grounding, but also in terms of what we've always done very well as archaeologists, which is to look at the constitution of sites, how places are made, and how they are made authoritative within people's daily actions and lives. And that's something that's part of a, a, a kind of a, a larger program that, that I'm very much invested in, whether it's in my work with geographic information systems, which is a very good tool for starting to look at the relationships between space, environment, and people over, over broad regions or within smaller site scales, or whether it's uh, looking very closely at materials to try and uh, inquire into the technological process and sequence through which those materials are made and how the value or meaning of particular kinds of uh, matter are very important to the constitution of something like a site, as uh, I talked about yesterday with the building of sacred places or, you know, the making of pottery, something of that sort. So I think we're at an exciting point for archaeology in terms that we can shift from maybe thinking about mapping power over territory and shifts that occur in terms of horizons and uh, empires and, and uh, cultural, uh, cultural areas that we've long done. And we could still do that work because I think we need that as a framework for then starting to inquire into the very local practices that constituted relationships of authority between people and how those shifted over time. Great. My name is Katie Jarrell. I'm a seventh year PhD student in the classics department. Um, my question is about how you see place and mobility interacting. So in your Inca chapter, you discuss how when the Inca were converting these older sites, um, oftentimes the mobility of the place was fundamentally changed. And so I'm thinking in particular of the construction of the plaza, sort of forcing people to walk through mm. an entire site mm -hmm. to reach that place. And I would like you to elaborate on the articulation of these new constructions with 
human mobility and how that is affecting the nature of placemaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there certainly is a lot there with the Incas. And that goes back to some of the things I was gesturing toward yesterday in terms of a relational worldview in which uh, the particular essence or not essence, but meaning of a place is linked to how it's related to other things that constitute it. And in that particular worldview for the Incas, and I hate to use the term worldview, but I'm, I'm searching for a term that's not ontology or cultural framework. <laughs> but you know, a really good one is spatial orientation. Let's go with that. It's a particular kind of spatial orientation. And something I didn't talk about yesterday is that's embedded in the structure of Southern Quechua to a particular degree. And a friend of mine, Bruce Mannheim, who's a linguist at Michigan, is working with this in saying that the structure, the grammatical structure of Quechua is allocentric as opposed to egocentric. It implies an allocentric spatial orientation. Now, we're used to an egocentric spatial orientation, which means that my relationship between me and objects or the relationship between myself and the space around me is determined by the space between me and the object, right? The air conditioner, for those listening about 10 feet away from me or 12 feet away from me, can be said to be closer to me than the tree that's about 50 feet behind that. That's how we would describe those spaces. According to Bruce Mannheim, he would say in an allocentric spatial orientation, the air conditioner, we would describe the air conditioner relative to the tree, not relative to me. So where is the air conditioner? It's close to the tree. It's near the tree, but it's far from whatever might be over there, a statue or something like that outside. So that's key to understanding the spatial design of these sites. And I think that's one reason why the spatial orientation of the site itself and how it unfolds to the viewer is very important to the way that the Incas were attempting to reorganize them. Now, to be clear, uh, one thing that doesn't come across perhaps so well in that article, well, because it's something I'm writing now, <laughs> is these people became uh, very high elite in the Inca empire, the people who were converting Wata. They, they were the Kiyos Kache, and they became uh, really the close, closest allies, one of the closest allies to the center of Inca power. And so when they were converting their site, they were converting it perhaps according to new kinds of principles of authority and order that were just developing in the area. And one of these would be that the idea that one encounters or one enters into a sacred landscape or something that is Inca or that uh, embodies Inca power and it unfolds ahead of you. So you, you encounter Wata, which is the site, and the Waka of Wata, which is the very end, so the sacred place of, of Wata, which is an immense sandstone uh, formation that looks much like a turkey. People call it El Pavo de Wata, the turkey of Wata, um, and, it, and it's immense. And you don't see that till the very end, and you, you, you walk along these stations as you're approaching it. So redesigning the site so the plazas at the very end conforms to an Inca kind of spatial orientation, which you also see in the Valley of Cusco, where we have these ritual lines people would walk as on the road to Huanacauri. What do these lines do? What does walking Wata in this way do? It, in a sense, unfolds a story in this allocentric kind of framework. It's not about you perceiving it. It's about noting, noticing the relationships between the places as you move from point A to point X or whatever it might be. In the case of Huanacari, which is the major Inca Waka and Shrine, the road to it leads directly through some of the oldest sites in the Cusco area in archaeological terms. This isn't recorded in the Spanish histories of Cusco. It's something we can see archaeologically, much like we can see ruins today. They would have seen them 600 years ago. It also goes through exposed geological formations that show lake that are from lake beds 
and have uh, uh, fossils contained within them, diatoms as well as other fossils that can still be seen today as would have been seen then. And then it leads you directly through Matawa, an earlier site that the Incas destroyed and created in, made into a ruin, and then is described in the Spanish histories as a ruin. And then they finally arrive at the Inca ancestors. So you walk through old things to arrive at an ancient site that represents antiquity. A similar thing I think is happening at Wata. So the, the creation of that wall at Wata was very important as, as, a, as a defining or demarcating Inca space. Also, of course, it's a fortified space. So I don't want to take away from what might be a functional argument that this is perhaps was perhaps used as a fortress. I don't think that the Incas had a sense that military was separate from religious space as we do. Um, much like in medieval Europe, a castle had multiple functions, whether fortress, palace, or religious space. So in this particular case, Wata is like that, but the wall is demarcating that you're beginning this procession through the site. And here you first pass tombs of the ancestors that are at Wata were embedded in the interior area of the wall, not in the article. Um, and then you move past through a series of platforms. Now, I'm not sure what was going on in those platforms because they're all very clean when we excavated them, which makes a lot of sense. But you walk along, the, along a road that connects multiple platforms like beads and a string through an area, a walled area, containing again more tombs before you descend toward the plaza. You see it for the first time after walking through that walled area, and then you see the great sandstone formation and the plaza, which would have been the center of ritual activity. So again, it opens up to you one step at a time, making a connection that these people are embedded in this place. The place is very old, meaning the place, I guess, in Arendtian terms is authoritative that it's seeped in tradition of the ancestors. And then you then you participate in the live space of the ritual plaza. Now, we can't recover this archaeologically, but we do know from ethnohistory and from some ethnography that what was happening in the plaza would have been feasting and dancing and massive amounts of drinking. Um, that probably is happening along this procession that I just described as well, from the entrance of the site down to the plaza. We know that from the stories of Wainakari, where there'd be processions from Cusco to Wainakari as they're walking through each of these ancient sites to approach their most ancient site, there would be massive amounts of drinking, dancing, and uh, singing. We don't have the songs, but I'm guessing that these songs are associated with the particular story of whatever place they're visiting, smaller scale wakas along the way. They would have seen the mummies of the ancient Incas, of the first line of Inca kings, on that road from uh, Cusco Center to Huanacari. So you see a certain mirroring there. Wata set up similarly. You enter the door, you see mummies embedded in the wall, then you pass the tombs, that are located at the central part of the site. You walk through these platforms where perhaps, again, some kind of singing and dancing is occurring or ritual libation, and then you finally arrive at the plaza. So I think that's what part of the reorganization, that many times these sites are not just a plaza, they're not a static sense of spatiality where you have a public space, and then outside of that, you have a separate realm of private space. The entire area is meant to be part of a processional activity, which Steve Verkey's described this very nicely too, with smaller scale sites in the Andes as well, and shown how this was key to Spanish conversion of, of, of shifting the endpoint of that procession becomes very important from the plaza to the chapel. And then that as well shifts the way that people would have moved throughout the site. So it's an excellent question because it's one thing that I think in our static maps of these sites, we don't often, or it's difficult for us as archeologists to just try and reconstruct how people may have moved through it. We're very lucky because of these processions, we have 
typically a paved road that leads you from one end to the other and through multiple platforms and you see doorways and you you can work it out in other words very easily and because of the terrain itself there just are not other pathways they're otherwise they're terraces or they'd have to be uh you know makeshift pathways of some sort thank you sure I'm Perry Gerardlow. I'm a sixth-year student in the anthropology department. Um, and my question follows somewhat from Katie's and um, also from your talk yesterday where you posed the question of how authority is exercised or manifested where things are persons. And mm -hmm. I sort of wanted to extend that to how does the conversion or killing or closing of a place work where places can also be people, as you mentioned yeah. yesterday. And, we, and people, as you just mentioned, can be mummies who are still effective mm -hmm. in politics, even though we would say these are bodies, these are no longer alive, right? So that killing or death doesn't stop something from being effective politically. Um, mm. So is there, a, is there another term also that would be more sort of commensurate with how Incan politics drew together these people, these things, these places? Um, because you were talking so much about the, the things and the, the political authority, and it got me thinking about places that are right. people in this same kind of system. Yeah, yeah and in that sense, uh, the things are constituting the place as a, an authoritative person. It's, they're making it Inca, or trying or attempting to uh, take its its power from the place or authority from the place. Um, and that's an excellent question, because as I noted yesterday, one thing about these authoritative places in the Inca realm or in the Andean framework is that the materiality of the place itself is is its essence. It's not a, a dualism that we find often where as if it's the soul of the place can be robbed from it if it's abandoned or if it's repurposed or something of that sort. Even we might think of that today. I mean, what is a... A city that's going through economic blight has it lost its soul to a particular degree or people might talk of a different time period in which the city was more vibrant and obviously it has a different character to it and that's not i think how people in the andes would have seen it uh, where in this particular case the city or the place is defined by its material aspects it is the stone and the stone is important to its being so if one is to constitute the place you need to be using certain things that that matter itself in the constitution for instance the red clay that i mentioned over and over yesterday but didn't get into too deeply uh, because i'm not sure how to interpret it but it obviously is something that's important to the constitution of a particular kind of place clay of course has certain properties that's very important for sealing and for uh, uh, keeping water out of particular contexts but as we talked about at lunch some of the clay I know for making Wainakari, for example, was taken from a specific place where they made the road and they created the ruin of the earlier site, Matawa. So there's this, this idea that you have to bring things together and through that labor to make a certain place sacred or authoritative. I, I hesitate using the word sacred like a lot of us do, <laughs> but authoritative is, is a good word in that particular sense. So how do you birth and kill a particular kind of space? And maybe then the question then becomes what differentiates one scale of place like a house from another, like a temple? And that becomes something I think very interesting because we see similar kinds of practices in the making of houses, as I presented yesterday, as we see in the making of these major sites like Wanakari or temples of this particular kind of sort. And there's this mimesis, and it's something you see in Inca architecture as well, where 
even though the stonework is beautiful, it's very elaborate, they have some basic forms and they just repeat them over and over. And the basic form is the house. So you have this sense of, of that, what is a palace for the Incas or a temple for the Incas, what we would call palace or temple is just a series of bigger houses, as opposed to a, a more complex internal structure that you might find in the old world. Uh, or in, even in the, the more ancient Andes or pyramids of some sort or something like this. We don't get this very often. What you see are clusters of houses that just get bigger and bigger and more elaborate. And so the practices for making a different kind of space just become that they're bigger and bigger and more elaborate. <laughs> there are more burials underneath them or there are more sacrifices. There's a larger extent of burning. And so that's where this distinction that we often have between the sacred and the mundane doesn't seem to make sense. And hence why I would hesitate to use a word like sacred. It's part of the process of making an authoritative space. And again, authority is a relation. And so that's how we can start thinking of the house as one kind of space that represents an a relation between the people who occupy it and the people who don't occupy it. And so it's important to make that authoritative space according to these particular kinds of practices, as it's important to create the great authoritative spaces of the plazas and the temples and whatnot, according to a similar kind of practices and then creating another system of relationships. Now those relationships then, one thing that's interesting in the creation of, of place, it's a great question, so I'm, <laughs> I don't want to spend all the time on this because I've been thinking about it a lot, but I'm, I'm very interested in the labor relationships and that's where I end the value article with labor of saying, well, this brings us back to a very simple point that obviously many have made that value is created through labor but authority is also constituted through labor, through those very practices in which some people are laying stone and others are directing the laying of the stone and others are those who become the occupants of the house. Now, in the creation of a house, we would think this is going to gather together a group of people or a smaller scale community or kin group to raise an Andean house and roof thatching itself is probably one of the more labor intensive uh, actions, something that we can't recover archaeologically. So they have these roofs which are made of wood on which they would be putting paha, which is a kind of straw that would be braided together throughout the to make the entire roof, a pitched roof. And so this would be a very uh, detailed, very sequential, I mean, coordinated process through multiple people that would have to exist in sequence. And we would think with the raising of a house as an ethnographic example, the creation of that place would entail, or let's say, uh, yeah, it would entail the creation of another house. So the people who came to participate in this project would participate in that project. And you get a kind of then authoritative relationship that seems like a kind of reciprocal engagement between people and community. The difference then with raising the temple, of course, is you don't have that kind of entailment, right? Those who are directing the raising of the temple are directing a labor process for the creation of that particular place. So part of the value that then is constituted in the creation of the place like Huanacauri as opposed to the house is I think part of that process of labor organization and coordination, part of the very process that some are directing it and some are enacting it. And some are uh, holding this knowledge of how to use things to create the place. And others are again, gathering the kinds of materials necessary and enacting it. So you have this distinction through the process of raising the temple those kinds of authoritative relationships are reproduced. Now, that doesn't get us to constitution, but it gets us to reproduction, which I think is another side of the same coin, of course, and a very important one. Now, how can we think of these places being killed is a very good question. <laughs> and something I'm still thinking a lot about, because of course I ended yesterday by talking about how the Spaniards and most likely some Andean uh, 
allies of theirs and perhaps enemies of the Incas, and there were many of those, uh, destroyed Huaynacauri, physically destroyed it, according to methods that we would expect from Andean people to employ to destroy a place. Uh, we, we do have instances of Spaniards burning and destroying Huacas. There's an entire period called the extirpation of idolatry in Peru, in which the Spaniards uh, saw it as part of their mission to destroy these places where they said the devil was speaking. So they needed to destroy the mouthpiece of the devil. They very much recognized the animistic qualities of the places. They didn't think that the Andean people were just misguided. They thought they were, or better said, they thought they were misguided by the devil. <laughs> they thought they were misguided because it wasn't the thing speaking, but it was the demon speaking through the thing. So they, we do have instances of just their utter destruction of these places. Burning. Uh, Brian Bowers excavated a, a waka called Yurak Rumi, which is uh, near Vilcabamba, the last site of Inca rebellion against the Spaniards. And you just utter fire and destruction. Of course, he finds some reoccupation later, but nothing like this process of of uh, very careful, let's say, uh, uh, termination practices at Wainakari. What were they doing, though? Were they trying to kill it? Or as Adam raised at dinner last night, were they trying to preserve it? Were they, I mean, as, or as we said at lunch, it's almost as if they tried to preserve it for us to talk about because that clay layer made it really nice for us to see <laughs> all this stuff broken. Um, but it certainly seems as though there may have been something that perhaps the Spaniards didn't understand, an attempt to preserve it for later use or an attempt to carefully destroy it according to these particular rules. So I'm not sure about how one kills a place seen to be alive. Uh, archaeologically, we certainly have these moments of what seem to be conversion. Um, Ethno-historically, there are some accounts of how one takes the power away from your enemy's wakas prior to battle. And it has to do with the sacrifice of certain birds that are only found in the very high terrain um, and might have something to do with some of the unique faunal deposits we found at places like Huaynacauri. So there certainly was a sense that one can affect or divest these places of power. Certainly difficult though, it seems to ever really kill them in a particular way. Hi, I'm Sam Sanft. I'm in my third year of the Anthropology PhD program. And I have a question about these Incan processes of emplacing valley that we've been discussing. Uh -huh. Do you think these processes of destruction, consumption, and construction are forms of colonialism? And do you think employing a concept of Incan colonialism would be fitting in these examples? Yeah, yes and no. Uh, particularly we have to remember that Wata, which I'm describing here, and some of the other sites we've been describing become parts of what we often call archaeologists in the region, the Cusco heartland. So what we're discussing here is the constitution of Inca itself. Uh, and that's, in, there's a, a, we're debating this, but I am of the opinion that there was no, uh, let's say, formalized Inca state in Cusco from which a program of colonization could occur in places like Wata at the time that Wata becomes Inca. And that's, the, that's why the title of my book is Becoming Inca, because it's really about the place becoming Inca. The people become Inca subjects. Place becomes Inca. And that's what's important to this conversion process, because it it's, uh, has double sides, right? So place becomes a place that's important to the manifestation embodiment of Inca authority in this area. Those people who inhabit it become what, we, what are called Inca by privilege, we think, because you couldn't become Inca as a person. Inca is in your blood. A place, it seems, can become Inca. But the people become Inca by privilege, which means they're 
they're Inca, but we all recognize you're not really Inca <laughs> in this particular sense. The Incas, it, it was is an empire defined by this bloodline, this very distinct bloodline, very different than than Roman Empire in this particular sense. You couldn't, you're not a citizen in the Inca Empire. You're in a particular social taxonomy at a certain rung. Okay, so that's important to understanding it. So in that sense, colonization is difficult in this regard because for two reasons, because these people were probably buying in more so than they were being colonized, probably trying to, probably seeing this opportunity to become part of the upper echelon of a developing uh, confederation within the Cusco area. And second, I'm not sure, and we might not ever know because we can't uh, conduct archeology span in Cusco itself. It's an immense living city, but uh, we don't necessarily know that there was any kind of formal Inca authority in Cusco. My analogy has long been that perhaps it was something more like a Republican or, I mean, in the ancient sense, classical sense, not contemporary, but a Republican or confederation uh, sense of politics throughout the entire area, because our best examples from material culture show a lot of shared political practices and styles and different kinds of and kinds of architecture, and especially uh, uh, tombs containing ancestors that are sending a very explicit visual message to people that this is a place of these people. And you see a lot of uh, similar ways of doing that directly prior to the formation of the Inca state. Then something happens around 1420 to 1440, we think. And this is coming a lot from ethno-history because we're getting only 100 years prior to the invasion of the Spaniards. And that's something that happens, corresponds, we know, ethno-historically to the rise of a particular political leader who's named Pachacuti Inca. And of course, this was a process. It's not the person who made the entire change. But as we know from other historical documents, this person seems to have instituted something very different in the Cusco region. And that's the imperial style. And this great, these great monuments, Machu Picchu, Ointatambo, Pisac, Saxoman, are all built after 1400, so about 50 to 100 years after the conversion of Wata. So we have these two different stages. And that seems to eclipse the authority of places like Wata, the earlier stage of places that are converted to Inca. There's a really interesting material relationship too. Most of those earlier places are built on sandstone formations and out of sandstone, the later are built out of andesite. I'm not sure what to do with that yet. There's something, there's a lot that could be done symbolically, I think. There's something about that and the properties of the stone itself, one being a volcanic stone, the other being uh, sedimentary. So, uh, which the Incas were very concerned about. But in that later period, then certainly, uh, I would think that the places conquered during what we might call an imperial era of the Inca after 1400, more or less, then I would be very comfortable saying this is colonization. It's what we would call colonization. And then you get something else occurring in the Cusco region. So the colonization in the classic sense of conquering people and moving Inca people from Cusco to conquered areas is occurring outside of Cusco by then. Cusco's already been well consolidated for at least 150, 200 years. But what happens in Cusco, and your trope of colonization is really interesting, is then they start moving people from other parts of the empire into Cusco. And so Wata is continually occupied, it seems, by the same people. But just around the corner, you start getting people from other areas of the empire as the strategy of uh, creating a generalized working subject throughout all of Cusco. And we don't have the information to look at what kinds of practices went uh, these people engaged in to build 
their own settlements in the Cusco heartland, where the Incas required them to build according to these particular techniques that I described yesterday that I think are very important to the definition of authoritative space in Cusco. I don't know if that carries over outside of Cusco, in other words. What we do know, uh, because I've done a lot of ethno-historical research around Ollantaytambo, which is a little bit north of Wata, and it's Ollantaytambo, if you don't know it, is, I showed, did I show a slide yesterday? No, I didn't. Just terraces. Um, but it's a picture of Machu Picchu, but in a valley. It's just a beautiful, immense Inca city that, that's still occupied. So there are Spanish architecture on top of it, as well as contemporary dwellings. And it's this immense area, just immense city that, that required the, the redirection, canalization of the river, the building of, I've done the analysis, I don't want to, but, but you know, over, I think, 600, 700 hectares of new terracing and whatnot. So it just extended throughout two valley systems much bigger than Machu Picchu, actually. Uh, they moved a lot of people from different areas of the empire to this landscape to become corn farmers, mostly, as well as to work in the construction and maintenance of these terraces. And what we find within each area that we know they moved particular people from areas of different, each, so let's say, plot of land, just to make it a very simple thing to imagine, not just a single plot, is a waka. So when they're moved there, so wakas again are, are authoritative, personified places that oftentimes are just a immense stone that might be carved and located on a platform. It might be a cave that's been carved where, where uh, rituals are conducted to feed the land, to, uh, to venerate the land itself. So these people were moved to the area and they established new wakas in these areas. And one way of interpreting this is they had to recenter themselves because of the relationship between person and place, part of the imperial project of colonization is to say, well, you're now of this place. Your waka is here. It's no longer where you came from. And this is the place where you'll conduct these kinds of rituals. And that goes back to one of the questions yesterday. This is the imperial violence that occurs if in a system in which, as we've been describing, people recognize persons, I mean, the land and places as persons, one, extreme measure of violence is to sever that relationship, is to cut that relationship and move people to another place and say, well, you just need to establish the relationship this way with the new Waka, and then note the underlying foundation of the Waka. It's Inca land. So you're not revering the land, the land of your ancestors, and the Tiracuna, as they call them, the places that are alive, hills and mountains and apus and mountains that are constantly watching as a moralizing force. Now all of those Tiracuna, all those places are Inca. You're in an Inca estate, Oyenta Tambo. So this is the violence of it. And this is, I think, the thing that we, we can't get too deep into thinking about the animistic practices and thinking about relationality and whatnot without, with, uh, with, we can't detach that from the, from the broader institutional structure that I think is often also pressing down in a very oppressive way on some of these people. Thank you. Sure. Hi, uh, I'm Kelly Breeden, first year uh, master's student in SIAMS. Um, I would like to look closely um, at kind of how the Spanish are using Andean like ideas of destruction and place killing um, yeah. in order to facilitate their political agendas um, and kind of the suggestion that those kind of ideas can cause groups to act in ways unfamiliar to their own culture. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit further on how political intention may cross like cultural boundaries. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Intention is, is tough, right? <laughs> yeah. And intentionality. And that's one thing uh, in the other article that when we haven't talked about entrainment, the one that I wrote with Andrew Bauer, it was a problem that we were dealing with quite a lot in, in trying to think, in that trying to think beyond the, uh, 
one notion of what what might call well anthropogenic land or landscape or place in which the intention is something coming from a human actor uh, formulated in the mind in terms of a cognitive process or something and then then realized through material activity. It's one reason why I hate when I see people using the term materialized, right? So they say something like these buildings materialized Inca authority because it creates this notion that there was something called Inca authority that just had to be materialized, it had to be created in material form. And so I always say the buildings manifested Inca authority. There was no authority until the building was made, right? Or that, that, that this, this concretized it and made it real. Um, so in that particular sense, yeah, how do we think of intention becomes an interesting question when we have this collision of two different empires. And really, it's just a time of utter confusion. And that's something to remember. Uh, two examples I often give in class, the first being uh, you see these chessboards for sale all throughout Cusco. And remember the commercials, maybe the two of us might only remember them, but it used to be you'd see these commercials about the Civil War chessboard always on TV constantly. It's, you know, the, the blue and the gray, the pewter pieces and whatnot, from the Franklin Mint or something. And I, it was something as a kid I loved. I wanted one, right? But they have these Inca and Spaniard chessboards as well in Cusco. And so that's our vision of, of the conquest often, as if you have two discrete forces. They're, they're well-organized, well-formulated, hierarchical, as chess pieces are. Uh, and, and, and they know what they're all about. And that's hence, that's what I was saying yesterday, as if we see it as the collision of two different ontological frameworks. But the other, the other analogy, the other thing that I use in when I teach the conquest in class is then I like to uh, show the students the Monty Python sketch of no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, <laughs> which of course is just utterly absurd. And that's exactly what the conquest was. Nothing went right. No one, it was not organized. No one knew why they were there. No one knew what was happening. Uh, most of the conquistadors were uh, very poor people. They weren't soldiers. They weren't professional soldiers at all. They were what we might call adventurers or entrepreneurs. Pizarro was a pig farmer. I mean, so this they, they didn't have a concrete sense. Most of them couldn't read, so they didn't have a sense of what Christian theology was even really about. So it's hard to say that they adhered to a Judeo-Christian ontology, as we often do. And then on the other side, we have a newly formulated Inca empire that was very young and that just had finished a very violent civil war that had just been torn apart by the Civil War, in which we had two sides that were battling over these specific places. And we had particular places, as I've described as being authoritative beings, who uh, told one of the uh, aspiring emperors that the other one would win. And so what did the, that emperor do? The one who actually did win, this place is called Catequil, he went there and tore it to bits, destroyed it, burnt it, tried to demolish it. And that would be a good uh, answer to your question of how is a place actually killed. And, and going back to that, just a second, because I didn't think about that. It might be the idea there is going back to labor. So the labor and the destruction, and then the fact that the place is no longer revered. It's not fed anymore. In other words, it can't just be destroyed. It has to then be starved in a particular sense. So it, it, for the Spaniards, they think they just have to destroy it. For the Incas with Catequila, they would say you have to destroy it and then ignore it. Can't even think about it, right? <laughs> because that because that gives it being in some sense. So yes, I mean, so the first step beyond this is to get beyond thinking that this was some kind of collision of the West and the and the indigenous. 
right? Because it wasn't, no one knew what was going on. And immediately many of the Incas allied with the Spaniards, married into them because they saw opportunity there and vice versa. And the Spaniards immediately went to war with one another <laughs> soon after that. And then as I was describing yesterday at dinner too, we have what was called the Neo-Inca rebellion of one of the Inca emperors mounting a massive rebellion against the Spaniards, building an entirely new authoritative and sacred space called Vilcabamba in the jungle. And he's using all of these Spanish materials. So he certainly had no uh, problem with taking on the materials of the conqueror. At the same time, though, many of the former Andean and Inca subjects are saying, are denying use of any European materials or symbols or Christian values or beliefs because they say it's the only way that the Wakas can uh, have their authority back. So it's this place, this time of just utter confusion. Um, what I'm drawing on to some extent then is thinking past that kind of idea of an ontological collision or a collision of cultures or even a Marshall Salins type structure of conjuncture where he talks about Captain Cook landing in Hawaii. That's a very different set of circumstances, I think. I'm, I wouldn't say that Marshall's wrong in his analysis. I would say that it's just a very different set of circumstances. Often we'll use that as a model for thinking about American conquest. I don't think it's a good model um, because it's just it was very different, very messy in America. Um, because in part of the Civil War, and because in part the diseases preceded the Spaniards too, by uh, decades. Huayna Capac, who was the last legitimate Inca ruler, the last one who was, I mean, after that, uh, they, all the sons went to war with one another, but Huayna Capac probably died of smallpox that made its way south from Panama long before the Spaniards themselves did. And then his first chosen heir died, most likely, of smallpox or something and then that left it open for the other heirs to fight it out. That became part of the problem. So a set of circumstances that preceded, I mean, it, it is the Marx quote of, you know, humans make their own history, but not in our conditions of their, of their own choosing is really relevant to, to this situation. So how did they do it then? And I think that's really interesting to think through, as I was saying today, those borders or boundaries, instead of thinking through the definition of some kind of, or constitution of some kind of ontological framework or cultural framework of how things act to think of how these things become an important way for people to uh, to make sense of these moments of cataclysm. So in that very sense of making meaning on the one hand, but also trying to fix what seems to be a very fluid process. And it seems as though for both Spaniards and Incas, it was completely fine to uh, dive into what might be the quiver of, of their opponent uh, to some degree. And you know, Christ, for the Incas, Jesus Christ was a waka, powerful waka. So they had no problem with taking on the crucifix as an important symbol for their own side. The Spaniards realized certain things about the Incas, that, uh, that, they, that they adhered to certain kinds of military procedure that would make it so the Spaniards could easily win certain battles between them. You know, basically days that you're not supposed to fight. The Spaniards didn't recognize that, the Incas did just as the Spaniards recognized it might be important to attack one of the major Inca gods on the solstice or right around the solstice, right around the same time as the solstice. So what I find interesting about that is the mutual recognition is that we often see the Spanish project is trying to destroy the cultural framework of the indigenous, but at the same time, they're, they're recognizing it. And it reminds me of another great case in terms of ethno history um, beyond some of the archaeology I'm doing. I'm trying to see this archaeologically, which I think is very difficult, but I think we have some inroads into it. I think Steve Wernke's work to raise again also is showing some nice inroads into this 
moment of negotiation or this process of negotiation between people who just had no idea what was going on and whether it was even going to continue, whether it would, a lot of people thought and wrote that, well, the Spaniards will probably just leave sooner or later that they're not here. Um, so uh, that's part of it. And it reminds me of a, of a great way of thinking about it that was the ethno-historian Steve Stern has written about in a great book about uh, the Spanish colonization of the Andes, where he talks about how remarkable it is that the people in the Andes very quickly realize that they can use the Spanish courtroom to their own advantage. And I have an article coming out on this as well in my article about ruins that's coming out in Ben Anderson's volume with Felipe Rojas. Uh, they very quickly start to realize that if they say these, are, these wakas were ruins of the Inca, but these are our boundary markers to our land, which prove that we've been here since time immemorial. So they've realized that these words are very important to the Spaniards. You see it over and over throughout the Americas by indigenous groups. And so they're using this to their advantage in order to make land claims. And they're probably realizing that these land claims uh, are not historically true the way we would say, because they and their people had been moved there by the Incas only one generation prior. So the claim of time immemorial is a difficult one to make. But they're negotiating their own uh, position, social position in those court litigations by using these kinds of terms, by converting their own once living sites into mute objects that just become a representation of space. They just become a boundary marker. They're no longer a living being that contains the essence of the people. Now, Steve Stern and also in the paper I wrote will argue, they're, so they're empowering themselves, but at the same time they're subjectifying themselves because they're doing it according to the court procedures of the Spaniards. So they're becoming part of a new legal and institutional system that makes them a subject to this broader juridical kind of process. And I think that might be similar to what's going on that we're going to see archaeologically as we investigate this more. And we're just scratching the surface, though, of the colonial period in Peru. Uh, most people have concentrated on conversion to Christianity. And we're just starting to look at what's happening at maybe a more domestic residential level. We still have many unanswered questions that would answer some of what you're thinking about in terms of, say, culture and hegemony. Questions that I think are very important, like uh, are they using you know, tools from Europe? Are they uh, making beer, which was very important to Inca ceremony, corn beer called chicha? Are they now making it out of wheat? Are things like this that would imply dramatic changes to the landscape as well. And then thinking about you know, shifts from yama herding to goat and sheep herding. These are really dramatic questions that would change people's relationships to the land and change people's relationships to one another. And all of this was happening in a very short period of time. So. We'll get back to that question, I hope, in a, in a decade or so. <laughs> but but it's, a, it's a great one, yeah. And I, I think going back to intentionality, the very start is just, uh, it's difficult. I think if we could be there to interview these actors, they would have a difficult time telling us what their intention was. <laughs> so it's very difficult for us to describe the intention of many of these actors. I, it's hard to reduce it all to pragmatic, ad hoc kinds of political tactic. But I think a lot of it was, I think people were just trying to make sense of the moment and maybe try and fix the moment to some degree to create something stable once again. Hi, I'm Andrew Crocker, a second year MA student in archeology. span Following on your response to Katie's question and the difficulties of applying static maps to an Incan sense of space, I was wondering how we might be able to turn GIS technologies to the issue of Incan placemaking. Mm -hmm. In particular, what sorts of spatial analysis methods do you think are useful for studying this topic? For placemaking or for looking at the organization of space within a place? Or uh, either or both. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because GIS, yeah, 
It's a fantastic question once again. I mean, obviously, uh, there have been great advances in our ability to map in, in the last 10 years as archaeologists. And we're, I'm using photogrammetry now. I didn't show any of those photogrammetry maps of these sites, and many of them uh, have exposed architecture. So we, we can very nicely map the relationships between buildings and, and the spatial organization of these particular sites in the Andes. Um, and that's something that I've been working on and others as well, uh, because of you know, drones can now fly at our altitude for the first time, uh, non-military drones. Uh, most of the sites I'm working at are above 3,800 meters. And so but prior to this, it was very difficult to fly a drone. So I was using balloons, actually hanging a camera from balloons over those, which means you're limited to photography uh, to maybe a couple hours in the morning before the winds really start picking up and the balloon crashes <laughs> and, and pops. Uh, so so that, that's been a big advance uh, because what used to be incredibly arduous labor of ma even mapping a site as big as a site called Pikiakta near Cusco that is over two square kilometers, uh, that would have taken an entire field season, if not two field seasons, to map using a total station or even multiple total stations. Now using photogrammetry, we can can have that visual representation fairly quickly, which allows us to look at quite a few different variables in terms of the construction of the place. Now, I'm, I'm very interested in spatial organization uh, for reasons that Katie pointed out, to look at potential patterns of movement within an archaeological site, uh, potential patterns of, uh, of vision or uh, lines of sight, so the way that streets perhaps organize to uh, emphasize particular areas of the site, or potential uh, ways that you know areas may have been set up so you're able to see what's going on in a domestic area and some stuff that i've published on that has compared domestic areas within inca sites using uh, gis methods of view sheds and, uh, and and visibility and some of this uh, one thing that i've found is that in a place like wata you have very low visibility between areas that's partially to do with the topography but also with those walls and with the way that ways that that pathway that I was describing earlier is set up, it's meant so it unfolds, like I said. So you don't see the plaza until you're about 200 meters from it, even though you've already walked uh, maybe a thousand meters or so from the entry to the site, entry of the site. So it unfolds as you're walking through it. And that's something very important to the spatial organization of the site. Inca domestic sites have very open visual patterns. And so what, what this means is if you're working in the patio outside your house, you can be seen from multiple other patios. And often, and interestingly, you can be seen from the tombs that are located on a hillside, almost always on a ridge above the domestic site. So there's lines of sight between the patio where you're working and your kin who are buried in the hillside and also between any person who's on the hillside looking toward the patio. Now, one way of describing this is I think it has to do with the emphasis in terms of visibility, emphasis on these particular areas of the site in places like Wata or Machu Picchu or Pisac, monumental Inca sites, so that they have this process of unfolding sequentially. That's very important to your, uh, let's say, phenomenological experience of that particular kind of place. To the placemaking kind of process or that may occur in the domestic site, then you have a different kind of relationship, one that is accentuating the relation between the people, living people and the dead as this, as this reciprocal or a dependent relationship, almost much like the construction of the house I was describing earlier. It seems much more communal, reciprocal. But also, I think it's really interesting because it must create a very closed sense of community as well. Because if someone who is not from, as I know from 
contemporary Andean towns, which are set up according to some of the same spatial principles. If you're not from there, everyone knows immediately that you're there, <laughs> which is very different than if you're walking through the streets of a place like Wata, of course. You'd only be seen by very few people because there's such limited kinds of lines of sight. The other with the more open lines of sight means that you could be seen by the entire village more or less at once, as well as those ancestors who would be powerful agents against you. So it's, set, it's, it's open in an internal way, among the people within that community and it's closed in an external way. You're not from there, you're easily seen traversing that space. And that's one thing that I've, I've done with visibility patterns with maps of, of just two sites. Now that we have the new photogrammetry technology, I'm working on that with multiple, many, I think I have a sample about 12 now. So I can really look at these patterns across different kinds of sites and different time periods. And so in that kind of placemaking, the sense that your experience of the place or the way that your body engages with it or that it, it uh, constrains your movement or uh, directs your perception. Like in that sense of placemaking, I think that these kinds of GIS techniques are very interesting. And we're very lucky as in some other parts of the world that we have so much exposed architecture that we can do this kind of mapping. Um, now for sequential placemaking, GIS is, a, in other words, overlapping architecture in a place like Wata, like I showed yesterday. That becomes more difficult with GIS, of course, because you have a lot of buried features that you might not know are there. And for us, technologically, we can't uh, drag GPR across these terrains so easily because it's basically at 30, 40 degree angles most of the time with lots of fallen stone. So it's difficult without a lot of test pitting or something to know where previous architecture was. We can look at architecture overlay nicely and architectural seams, looking at where buildings are extended. Uh, very nicely in places like Wata, you can definitely pick out where are in places that have been previous, previously occupied, better said, that then have Inca constructions atop them. You can pick out those different construction techniques. And that gives you a certain way that with GIS, you can think about, so which areas were, where were the areas where it was important for them to invest labor in the Inca period in order to extend the authority of this place, let's say. And so at Wata, for example, we can come to the conclusion that it was very important to build a plaza over what was previously probably uh, something like an elite dwelling, you know, some of the largest houses, and it was a compound with multiple houses in that plaza area. So it goes from private residential elite space to public, what we might call, quote, public, open, better said, uh, performance space. And that's interesting. Uh, with GIS, we can, of course, show that, illustrate that through layering. What can we do analytically? I think that's becoming interesting and I haven't worked with that so much is to then once again, go back to the labor process and think about the stonework and measure the volume of these walls and think about how much labor might've invested actual you know, energy invested in these areas. I'm not saying that energetics approach is our way to get an authority, but it's certainly part of the equation. We certainly wanna look at where are the areas that were important to invest time and invest labor in order to create some kind of new image of the space. Um, beyond that, and uh, again, another great question. I am really excited about using GIS now to look at land in different ways. So beyond that, we've been talking a lot about places in terms of what we, what we call uh, archeological sites, but not as much about some of the more important and powerful places of the Andes, the fields themselves, uh, in valued places, I should say. Um, not authoritative in the same way as one of these temples or wakas, but very important to daily life, of course. And uh, through a combination of GIS and remote sensing, what I've been doing is retrodicting, looking at contemporary land use patterns and uh, classifying soil types throughout the entire survey area that I worked in years ago in order to then 
compare that to settlement patterns through the Inca period to look at how what kinds of lands the Incas were investing their time and labor in and how they were developing those lands as part of a broader interconnected valley-wide social system. So it's almost as though they're, they're creating this social organism in places like Juanita Tambo by building canals that stretch for 10 kilometers from one spring where Waka is located to finally feed specific terraces at the other end of the valley. All along the way, they'd have to they create labor relationships. Some people have to clean the canal at point A. People at point C have to make sure that the drop canal doesn't get uh, it doesn't uh, fall uh, erode the sides of the wall of the canal. And this creates a very complex and complicated system that I would just call an ecology, but it's very much like an assemblage of materials, people, and things. And uh, remote sensing allows us to look at how they're shaping the land. And then GIS allows us to model those relations, then gives us a different perspective on Spanish colonization, because we can start to see how the Spaniards now sought to build on those Inca models of labor coordination as they developed a new kind of market-based system of crops and as the conversion of the land became an important part of the conversion of the people. The move shift from uh, corn agriculture to wheat agriculture was seen part as part of uh, part and parcel of the project of moving people away from uh, Inca notions of land to Christian notions of uh, nature, let's say. And we're going to have to end our conversation oh. there. Uh, but uh, as with many of these conversations, they tend to end on notes of let's talk again in about five or 10 years. <laughs> and we'll see where the theoretical, yeah. the epistemological, and the technical capacities of the field have transformed themselves. Yeah. Uh, before we end, I want to thank, first of all, our guests, uh, Professor Steve Kasiba, and I want to thank our panel of uh, students who have been here asking extraordinarily penetrating questions. And I want to thank all of you out there for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be announced soon on siams.cornell.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>